Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. Today is a, we're actually finishing off our Graceful series, so next week we start a brand new series and that's going to be good fun. Uh, basically from next week onwards we're going to be doing a three-part series called Imago Day. And that is going to be all about uh, being created in the image of God and what that means. And so Dr. Pat will be kicking us off talking about the design for sex in God's plan. The week after, we're going to be, I'm going to be talking about um, the design for women in God's plan, which is something that I think you should invite everyone to because it is such an important conversation. And then uh, Pastor Beck will be finishing off uh, talking about God's design for love and community and connection and what that means and what that looks like and so it's going to be a really freeing i believe series that's going to be coming up but we're going to finish off our graceful series and we're going to be looking at ephesians 2 8 to 10 as we have over the series and so um, it's going to come up on the screens as well and it says this for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is a gift of god not by works so that no one can boast for we are god's handiwork created in christ jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And we spoke at the start of the series that grace is the unmerited favor of God. We used the parable of um, the lost son and we spoke about how there's so many different pictures of grace in that and it's more mind-blowing than most of us actually know. Uh, many people who spoke to me after and said, I never thought of grace in that way. And I think that's so important because I think that God's grace is so beyond what we can imagine that we should always be getting new revelation about what His grace looks like. But basically, if we are going to give it a definition, it is the unmerited favor of God is what God has determined to give to us. It is not something that you have earned. It's not something that you have performed for. It is not anything that you deserve. It is a gift that God wants to give to us. And then last week we talked about faith because faith is the key to receiving grace. And we spoke about how faith isn't this wishy-washy spiritual substance. We spoke about faith as being an intense persuasion of God's goodness. I am intensely persuaded that God loves me and that He's good to me and that He does good for me. And so that faith lets me lean into God and therefore receive the grace of God. Right? Anyone remember? A couple of people do. If you don't remember, it's on podcasts. You can listen to it. Uh, and today I'm going to be pulling it all together. And before we go there, uh, I do want to tell a story. Um, this story is about a little boy called Tom. There's no one here called Tom, is there? No. Nah. Cool. Because this is a fictional character called Tom. And good old Tom. Tom was a little child, and Tom had never known his biological parents. He, um, they passed away before he got to know them, and so right from, all, uh, right from when he remembered, Tom was uh, part of a foster home led by the Shaws, Mr. and Mrs. Shaw. And um, so he had a shelter over his head. He had a, a group of people that he called family because Mr. and Mrs. Shaw didn't just uh, uh, adopt or foster Tom. They also fostered a whole bunch of other kids. Unfortunately, the Shaws weren't good people. They were hucksters, if you will. I don't even know what hucksters mean. This sounds kind of terrible. 
You don't want anyone calling you a huxer, but the Shaws were huxers. And what they did was that they got, they got their support from having all of these kids from the government, but they also got the kids to beg, steal, to, to busk in whatever way that their kids could bring in money on a daily basis. And so the Shaws lived on what the kids were bringing in. Um, and how they started to speak to the kids right from when they received them is that, hey, I have been so good to you. When no one wanted you, I brought you in. I looked after you. I give you a roof over your head. I give you food to fill your bellies. I am so good to you. You just need to remember that. And for good old Tom, that was all that he knew. He grew up in this world thinking that the shores were good people. That the shores were people that had taken him in when no one else wanted him. And so this was the environment that he was in. And um, the thing about Tom is that he was a gifted child. He was gifted with a beautiful voice. And so what the shores did when they, did, when they found us out is that they put him in the town square and he would sing. And as he sang, a little crowd would be drawn to him and he would sing for them. Uh, they would give him uh, little donations of coins or sometimes even some notes as he entertained them with his voice, with what he could bring. And what would then happen is that he would take that money, he would bring it to the shores, the shores would keep 90% of it and 10% was given to Tom. And they did this because they, uh, they were really clever. They, they, they thought that this was a way of teaching Tom that they were actually being generous. They didn't need to give him any money. They already gave him a shelter. They already gave him food and here's 10%. And so Tom lived in that space, in that world for years. But things were about to change because one day a lady named Eve walks into this town. She, she had moved in from a, a different place and she was uh, going to the town square to do some business and she sees this little crowd over there and drawn to it, she, she heads over and she hears this most beautiful voice, this little boy who was singing his heart out. It, it was a beautiful sound. It, it was captivating. It was innocent. But Eve casts her eyes onto Tom and sees that Tom, this little boy, is basically a bag of bones. And he looks a little bit dirty. He looks a, like he, he isn't very well kept. His voice said something else, but when she looked at him, she knew that there's something that was going on here. And the thing is, the difference between Eve and any other person that was listening to him was that she was a judge. And justice was a part of her DNA. She wanted to seek justice. And there was a little bit of a disconnect for her because she saw the gift, the talent that this little boy had, but saw what he looked like on the outside and knew that that wasn't being looked after well. And so she follows Tom at a distance until he gets home and, and she uh, uh, pursues an investigation to see what was going on. And long story short, the Shores got caught out, um, they got sent to jail, all the kids were found homes, but Eve decided, I'm going to take Tom home, I'm going to become his guardian. Uh, he, he was something special to her. It was uh, the first of um, the steps that she would take to bring justice into this township. And, and Tom comes into uh, her house and she's, you've now got a new life. This is something that I'm going to provide for you. You are my child, you are, uh, I'm your guardian, I'm your parent, and this is going to be us. Little did she know how new this life was going to be to Tom. And so he finds out about what Tom's favorite dishes were. 
and, and prepares the first meal that they were going to have together. Uh, she thought, I'm going to spoil him a little bit. This is a new environment for him. I'm going to provide his favorite fruit. And so they gathered together for this lovely dinner that Eve had provided uh, with all his favorite foods. And to her surprise, Tom only took a tiny little portion, a, a little bit of, uh, of the dishes that were prepared. And it, it didn't look like it would be enough for a boy his age for a boy, uh, his size, even though he was skin and bones, he, he was meant to eat at least twice of what he put onto his plate. And, and Eve started to go, come on, take more, take more. There's more than enough, come on, have more. This is, this is dinner, have, have your dinner. And, and Tom wouldn't budge. And it took a little bit of coaxing, but Eve started to find out the story behind Tom's insistence of not taking any more. You see, when he was with the Shores, they would not let the kids take too much. And whenever the kids took a little bit more than the portion uh, that they had given to, to them, they would tell them off for being greedy, for being these ungrateful little kids who did not know what they deserve and, and on and on. And Tom was already feeling guilty because he took more on his plate than he would normally get. This broke Eve's heart, and she said to him, this is now your home. It's not the same here anymore. And she proceeds to give him a proper portion for his meal. The next morning, though, Eve gets up, and there's a shock awaiting her. She prepares breakfast and then goes to call Tom down for breakfast. But as she went to his room, he was nowhere to be found. She starts to search high and low for him all across the house and then down the neighborhood, asking the neighbors if anyone has seen Tom and suddenly something struck her. She got herself ready. She went to the town square, and there she found Tom at the town square, singing as he normally would, with a little crowd around him. Now Tom spots Eve from the distance, and a smile breaks up on his face, and, uh, and he finishes off his song, and he runs all the way to Eve, gives a big hug, and with a big smile, he says, I had an amazing morning, Eve. And look, I've got so many people came, and, and, and this is what I collected, and this is your portion. I hope that you are pleased with me. To her surprise, to his surprise, Eve started crying, and, and Tom asks, was this not enough? Is this not enough? And Eve tells him, as long as you're with me, you will always be enough. You will never have to do this again. You don't have to pay me to have you. I've chosen to have you. And I put this story together because I was trying to find something to help us see and understand what God has done for us. You see, the way that we have lived becomes a pattern of thinking, a pattern of approaching the world that sits with us and, and, and um, informs how we live and informs the decisions that we make. And much like Tom, even though God has given us a new life, many of us are still living according to old ways. And when we enter this new life that God has got for us, it doesn't always make sense. It doesn't always sit comfortably with us. It, in fact, I would say that more often, in fact, all the time, as we step into the new life that God has got for us, it will always jar against what you have lived with. 
And I want to show this to you in Romans 6, 1 to 4. It says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. See, Paul was writing to the Roman church, to the Jews that were in Rome, who, uh, not just the Jews, they're Christians in Rome, and he was teaching them about what God had given to them, and they were talking about the grace that God uh, had given to them that gave them permission to do anything and everything that they wanted. It said that grace has now permitted me to do whatever I want. And so they continued in their old lifestyles, saying that they have got grace. And Paul says to them, no, grace saves you from that and brings you into a new life. And that means that you shouldn't be going back to the old life. And I'm wondering how many of us are living under grace, but under always. How many of us haven't experienced the fullness of God's grace because there's still old patterns that we are living according to? And that is something that God has, um, has put in me. The more I go through my pastoral journey, the more I, I, I do what I feel God has called me to, I'm coming alongside people and I'm trying to help people more. And one of the things that God has graced me with is that an ability to see patterns. And when I see patterns, uh, I, I try to help people break patterns. And I used to do it like it was a, like I was a, a, a jackhammer and a person's problems was a concrete wall that I needed to break down. I was like, you need to change. And I would just steamroll bulldoze down and, and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? The more I've gone through my journey, the more I realize that people do what they do because it makes sense. People do what they do because it works for them according to their old lifestyle. In the story that I told Tom, only took a little portion, even though more was given to him in this new life, because if he took more in the old life, that would have been punishment. I'm wondering how many of us are not access, accessing the more that God has for us, because in the old life, we, 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 we were punished for desiring more, we were punished for living out more, and, and so we made ourselves smaller in order to exist in this space. And the truth is, it is always heartbreaking when you hear why patterns uh, or what patterns have developed in people. And I was having a conversation with someone and this person was talking about how uh, they couldn't see themselves in any normal kind of relationship because it was so foreign to them. It was uncomfortable for them. They would rather be in a dysfunctional relationship because, because that was familiar and comfortable. I want you this morning to examine yourselves. The place that you are in might be comfortable, but is it full of grace? The place that you're in might even feel kind of great to yourselves, but if you were to take a bigger picture, is that a place of health? Is it a place of vitality? Is it a place where God has got more for you? Or is it not? I understand that that might work and that might have kept you going all the years of your life thus far. But do you know that God has got more for you in a new life? 
And so what we need to do is to understand that those patterns are holding us back from accessing and receiving the grace of God. We need to be journeying and coming into a place of resting in what God has got for us. That's what we were talking about with faith last week. We were talking about how faith is this intense persuasion that God is good. See, so many of us are holding on to old ways because we need, we need it to look after ourselves. In whatever situation you came from, you needed to depend on your defense mechanisms in order to survive. And coming to God is hard because you need to let those defensive walls down. Coming to God is difficult because it means being vulnerable. I was watching Star Trek yesterday. I'm not a Trekkie. I just like the new stuff. The old stuff is terrible. They fight like this. And the person is like, and I was like, what the heck? Even Power Rangers is better than that. I'm just, in, I'm just upsetting a whole bunch of people this morning. But one of the things that it said in this episode was that to receive the person that they were trying to receive, they needed to put their shields down. You know, they had to beam this, I don't know if I just lost everyone. <laughs> but basically they got this tractor beam thing, right? Science. And they would be able to beam this person in. But they were in the midst of a battle and so their shields were up and the shields stopped them from receiving. And they were like, oh, but we need to receive this person. And I say, our shields are up, what do we do? And that's what it feels like to receive God's grace. To put our defenses down in order to receive the grace. As long as our defenses are up, God's not going to shove His grace down your throat. That isn't grace, that's like force feeding. And then God knows that He, and that he is, well, God's patient. And God is kind. He's long-suffering and He's waiting at the door of your heart and He's saying, put your defenses down so that you can receive my grace. But it is difficult. But the more we lean into a faith that is persuaded that God is good to me, the more I live differently. Let me show this to you in the Word of God. James 2, 14 to 18 says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. This passage, I hated when I was growing up because it was used as a stick to beat me up. Growing up in a more uh, conservative type society and, and church, uh, I've always been a Christian and I've always gone to church. My parents have raised me up with all of this, but I just distinctly remember that whenever faith and deeds were mentioned, it was said in a way that if you are a good Christian, you'll be a good boy. If you want to be a good Christian, then you need to be polite. If you want to be a good Christian, then you need to be respectful. If you want to be a good Christian, then you will work hard for your grades. If you want to be a good Christian, do this. If you want to be a good Christian, do that. And it used to be so 
much of a burden to look at this verse and to think that, where's my faith at? Am I performing at a level that God would accept me? They would bring out another verse that said, without faith is impossible to please God. That's in Hebrews 11. And, and I would think that, is my faith pleasing to God? Am I doing enough to be pleasing to God? And I would struggle because I know that there are things in me that God wouldn't be proud of. There are things in me that I'm not proud of. There are things in me that isn't quite right. Does that mean that my faith is weak and that God doesn't love me? Does it mean that God isn't pleased with me? And I struggle with that, especially in the light of Ephesians 2, where it says that grace is given to us by our faith and is not of our works. So how do we piece these verses together? Am I supposed to work or am I supposed to receive? What is this supposed to look like? And I started to see over time that the difference is that faith is not works, but faith is demonstrated by deeds. Works, when you work, is for a wage, is for payment, is for something that you earn. But a deed comes from within. With works, you're trying to gain. With deeds, you're simply trying to live out. See, faith without deeds is dead. Because faith is always demonstrated by how you live. When you don't see faith as this airy, fairy spiritual thing, but it's your persuasion, your internal persuasion towards God's goodness and His love for you, it, it, it informs me of something different. Faith is really more of a worldview. That's something that philosophers and sociologists would have talked, have talked about for ages, that every single person has a worldview, the way that they see the world. And the way that you see the world determines how you live out your life in accordance to the world. So if you think, if your worldview is that you need to earn God's approval, then you would be trying to do these things in order to gain God's approval. But if your worldview is that God already approves you, then your life is going to look radically different. Put it in a different way. If you are in a, um, if you've grown up in a traumatic, abusive uh, family, then you are going to grow up with this uh, worldview that people cannot be trusted. More than likely, you're going to have this worldview that people cannot be trusted. And then you're going to go into school, you're going to go into workplaces, and you're going to carry that worldview that people cannot be trusted. And so how do you think a person like that is going to act towards you? Do you think that they're going to receive you with open arms the first time you come to them? Do you think they're going to be nice and happy that you want to accept them into your home? No, they're going to be suspicious about what you are trying to do. They're going to be thinking that, that you have got an ulterior motive to, show, to, uh, to you showing your love. And that's a worldview that they're going to have, which incidentally what happens is that as they live out that worldview that people cannot be trusted, People see this prickliness, this defensiveness. What do they do? They pull away, which then confirms this worldview. And that's what philosophers say about worldview. And you know, that's what the Bible says about a worldview. When I'm intensely persuaded that God loves me, my whole world changes. When I'm intensely persuaded 
that God has got plans to, to prosper me, that plans for my hope, uh, for a future, to do something of purpose and largeness in my life. I live differently. The church of God is meant to look different because we have a different perspective on how this world is supposed to work. We are supposed to have a hope and we are supposed to have joy. We are supposed to have peace. Why? Because we're not looking at situations that are taking place outside of uh, the walls of our homes. We are looking through the eyes of the Father who understands and sees and is sovereign above all. And so we can have this hope. But the more that I've gone through this life, the more I've discovered that when I'm trying to live out my faith, I'm really uncomfortable. It doesn't feel natural. A little while ago, um, I found out that I have got a medical condition. No, it's not schizophrenia. Stop talking. No, it's not that. It's, um, I've got something called beta thalassemia, which is kind of a low-grade anemia, uh, which basically means that I've got lesser and smaller red blood cells. Um, and so when I found that out, I was like, this makes sense, because I hate cardio. I hate, I feel like I'm dying every time I do cardio. Like, I've got no stamina. It's like... You know, I read stories about people like, yeah, I haven't run for ages. I went for a run the other day. I could only make it to 5Ks. I'm like, that's like after two years of work for me. It's ridiculous. Like, what the heck? And, um, and so a little while ago, I, I decided to go, how does uh, thalassemia affect um, stamina and running capacity, all that kind of stuff. And um, I couldn't find much because beta thalassemia, which I have, is actually a very low-grade anemia, so I really shouldn't be using it as an excuse but it is an excuse. I'm terrible at running. Um, but uh, as I searched this up and I read this really weird article because um, basically um, a guy with full-on thalassemia had just finished running a marathon. And um, <laughs> so much judgment emanating from Beck right now. And, um, and uh, these, these doctor people type scientists things, um, they, they wrote about how if you want to increase your running capacity, even with thalassemia, do you know what you do? You run. The more you give in to your deficiency, the more it becomes a deficiency. The more you give in to why things are in you, the more you walk away from where you want to be. And so, yes, you weren't loved as a child. And you can live your life as though you are unlovable, but you will never find the love that you want. You can live your life as though you are never smart enough, intelligent, intelligent enough to do anything in your life because your teacher said so, your parents said so, whatever it is, but you're never going to get to a place of doing anything about it.
You know, what, what, what are you allowing yourself to think about and, and, and to sit in you, to develop a pattern in you that is supposed to be broken? Because the only way to break it is to do the things that are uncomfortable, that are not natural to you, that is actually holding you back. And so even though I have got beta thalassemia and I'm not supposed to be that good a runner, and I still am not, I, I want to be able to get to a place where I am running and through that running is going to develop new capacities inside of me that will then allow me to one day run 3Ks. I'm setting the bar though, guys. Some people are way too happy that I want to run 3Ks. But I hope that paints a little bit of a picture. Let me bring this into a bit more of a real world situation as, um, as I get ready to finish off this morning. But one of the things that I've been going through over the last year. And look, I've, I've been a Christian all my life. And uh, I've always known God and I've always had some kind of relationship with God. Sometimes it wasn't that great. But it's been a long time. And I've studied the Word. I've read the Word. I've read the Bible cover to cover multiple times and, and all of that. But even so, I'm still on a journey where God continues to reveal old patterns in me. Things that I've picked up that I didn't know that I picked up. And this last year has been a bit of a journey through unpicking one of those old patterns that have been guiding my life. There's old worldview about things that have been guiding my life. And um, so things radically changed for me uh, close to a year ago. And it changed because I became a dad, not a biological dad. Uh, you can call it a spiritual dad, something like that. I don't know. Uh, but basically at Hillsong Conference last year, God put on my heart that uh, she, he started to show me certain things that were stuck in my life. And then, and then he just simply said, why don't you uh, ask Robin to uh, come under your wing and to be a daughter to you? And I was like, well, that's weird, isn't it? And um, you know, the thing about it is that it was amazing because God actually gave me a whole manual on how to be a dad. Literally, I was like this download, 5,000 page manual on how to be a good dad. And I was like, oh yeah, I can do this. Because God had shouldn't no, I didn't get a manual. <laughs> for those of you that wanted to ask me for that manual, I don't have it. Because God didn't give it. What did he do? He said, do this. And I was like, what? Yeah, okay, do this. He said, like, what do you mean do it? Do it. I'm like, okay. I did. And I didn't know what I was doing. Was I uncomfortable? Yes. Did I know how it was supposed to look like? No. So many of us stop ourselves from stepping into the things of God because the thing that he's asking you to do, you're like, what? Give me the manual. Give me the results. Give me how it's supposed to work out before I'm going to step into it. That's not how it works. When I have an intense persuasion that God loves me, I say yes to what He's saying because I know that what He's going to give me isn't going to destroy me. It's always going to build me up. And so I said yes, even though I was uncomfortable. But when I said yes, I did not know what it was going to mean for me. And it sparked off this crazy journey that I was not anticipating. And a big part of it is that I started to see how I had certain patterns that I, 
um, was really, like when I discovered it, I was really not proud of. As I mentioned previously, uh, when I help people, I would take the jackhammer approach and, and kind of just try to solve problems. And, and that's what I did. You know, right from a young age, I always thought that I would be in the business of helping people. At first, I wanted to be a fireman and policeman, you know, all kids do that. And then because I discovered I was really good at science, I wanted to be an inventor. And I remember one of those inventions was going to be a rubbish robot that would take out the trash for you. I was so proud of that. Mum was very proud of that too. She was like, yes, do that, please. Uh, it never happened. Um, God took my life on a whole different journey. And I thought I'd be a counselor. I thought I'd be a psychologist. I studied all that stuff. And yet there was still something about the way that I help people. Uh, about eight, nine years ago, uh, I officially became a pastor. I was credentialed, and as part of that, I thought that I needed to step up my discipleship game. Not knowing that a discipleship game isn't just for pastors, it's for every single Christian. All of you are meant to be discipled and discipling. Anyway, that's another message for another time, but I thought that, hey, I really got to get this going, and I got a couple of dudes and, um, and said, you know, I want to I wanna meet up with you, I want to help you and when I look back the only way that I helped them was in behaviors life skills so I'll teach them about time management I'll teach them about priority management I'll teach them about goal setting I'll teach them about how to do all of those kinds of things one thing I never did was that I never wanted to get anywhere close to their heart so I was involved but I was uninvolved I was there but I wasn't there. And as I looked into that, and I, I, honestly, that, that infuriated me when I discovered that that's what I was doing. And I was like, why am I so terrible at being involved in people's lives? And I discovered a pattern, an old life pattern that was deeply rooted inside of me. The reason why I did not get involved with people deeply was because of two fears. It was a fear of failure and a fear of rejection. I did not know whether I had anything of real value to offer their hearts. And so I stuck to things that I knew. I know how to do a budget. I know how to do a timesheet. I know how to do a schedule. I know how to set up goals. I know how to do that stuff. God's telling me my time's nearly up. And... Um, and so I did those things. But when it came to the deeper things of a person's heart, I was like, oh, it's not my thing. And I realized that the other thing about that was that if I failed, I would be rejected. That was just a perspective that I had of this world. And that genuinely was something that I continued to carry on over my journey until last year. And I think God was very specific. He didn't say, disciple Robin. He said, be a dad, because he was trying to unlock something that had been locked up for a long time. You see, when it comes to having a daughter or a child that is uh, under your wings, it is not about, you actually have to be involved. And, and as I, I took that step and became involved, it opened up a whole bunch of things that I wasn't used to. And it made me uncomfortable because it was like, am I meant to worry this much? Am I, not that Robin was doing terrible things, and I was, but it was just that constant sense of like, how's she doing? 
Is she okay? I wonder why she's eating today. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Why? I was like, God, I don't want to be thinking, like, if Robin had Twitter and tweeted all the stuff that she was doing, it would have made my life a lot easier. <laughs> Maybe that's what Twitter is for, for parents, to know what a kid's doing. But I didn't have any of that, and it was strange, and it was a place where I was like, am I caring too much? And, and, and honest truth is, there were moments where I thought I was being a good dad. There were times where she was asking me about how taxes and mortgages work. Because I know how taxes and mortgages work. And I'm like, yeah, I can tell you about that. We can talk about music. I know music. I've got grade eight. I know that kind of stuff. But then when she starts talking about heart stuff, I was like, oh, gosh, I hope I'm not stuffing this up. I hope that I am not radically destroying a human being because I have no idea what I'm doing. And coupled with that was this genuine fear that Robin could just say, I'm out of here. And I developed an attachment, as a dad should have, uh, with Robin that was genuinely scared about whether rejection could come in. And as I was knee-deep in this new life, I felt that I had completely stepped out of the boat and I still didn't know whether I was sinking or swimming. I felt like maybe the waters were here and I was weirdly floating on the water. It was uncomfortable. Is it still uncomfortable? No, because I've started to get used to this new life. And God started to show to me that those fears were holding me back. They were the thalassemia of my soul. They were the things that said, your heart is too small. Your skills are too narrow. Your perspective is too one-dimensional. You don't have anything to give to anyone else. Don't get involved because you don't want to get cast away. You don't want to get pushed away. And those were the thalassemic thoughts inside of my mind that stopped me from being able to do the things that God had called me to. And so God called me to do a radical thing that I would never have thought of for myself. No other pastor talks about doing this. Honestly, I was like, give me a book on what I'm supposed to do now. I couldn't find a single one. Why? Because it's so out there that God had put on my heart. I'm not saying just to go around doing this. Genuinely ensure that God is in it for sure. 100%. I checked in with Beck. I checked in with my pastor and said, this is what God has put on my heart. I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, cool. Let's do this. And it's awesome to have the accountability. But deep inside, it has been a journey of self-discovery. It's been a journey where I'm like leaning into God so much more. And I've started to discover that the more I lean into this, I've started to discover the depths of love that God has for people. How He can continue to show grace when a person doesn't deserve it. I love that song that we were singing. It's like, I can do all of this and could still not add up to be someone that you could love, but even so, you still love. And that has been a radical thing for me, to think that my God is not just my boss, my God is not just my Lord, but He's the lover of my soul. And that has been something that's radical and has actually shifted my relationship with God. But what it took was a big step into an uncomfortable situation. A big step of saying, I'm not going to do things the way I always have done. Because God's grace 
that I'm leaning into is worth so much more than the old patterns that have helped me back. I can refer to my thalassemic thoughts or I can refer to the grace of God. I'm wondering how many people in this room have not experienced the fullness of God's grace because you don't want to be uncomfortable, because you are scared, because you're afraid, letting those defenses down. I've said this a couple of times over the series, the enemy of faith isn't doubt, it's independence. It's when I say that I'm gonna deal with this myself and I can see how so much of my life, the old ways of thinking was my attempt to control my situation. And I've discovered that the more I step into God's grace, how out of control I am. And that freaks me out. I'm still learning how to trust God along with all of you. But I'm leaning into one of those amazing promises that is found in the Bible. Paul was talking about a thorn that had been in his flesh that he had asked God to remove time and time and time again, but it stayed, it remained. And then he said, Jesus spoke and in that place where he felt weak, where he felt that he had nothing to hold on to, no control over the situation, Jesus spoke and said, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul goes on to say, so I will boast all the more in my weaknesses so that his grace may abound in me. I stand here not as someone who is in control and comfortable. I don't know what I'm doing half the time. When I sit with people, I'm like, why would this person trust me? What have I done? This week at national conference, we were at our national conference of our movement, the ACC, and being part of the state executive, we were literally sitting on the front row. And I felt, do I deserve this place? Do I really know what I'm doing here? And there were those thoughts of, no, you don't. Run. And I was like, no, God's called me here. I will never earn this position. I can't. What can I do? Build a church of a thousand people? Oh, I've tried that. Look at how many people we've got. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. It's just the journey that we're on. But sometimes we are stupid enough to think that we're in control of our destiny and our fate. It's never been that way. I can't earn this, so I might as well just go with the grace that God has given to me. If we can get the band up this morning. See, God's grace is an invitation into the uncomfortable. God's grace is going to make you uncomfortable. The discomfort doesn't stay. The comfort is simply a reaction 
to us needing to leave behind old patterns and old ways that have become easy and natural to us. The more that I see the natural grace of God and the life that He's called me to, and the more that I trust that God has got plans to prosper me, plans to give me a hope and a future, that His grace abounds to me, that it is exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond, the more that discomfort gives way to a choice that I would prefer to be uncomfortable and in God's grace than to be comfortable and anemic in my life. I would rather choose to understand and to admit my weaknesses, knowing that grace covers it, rather than to be standing in my own strength, trying to prove to every person that comes my way that I've got it together. I don't have it together all the time, and it's tiring to try to have it all together all the time. So I would rather say, I don't have it together, but I will trust God. And quite often the trusting of God means that He's gonna say crazy things to you. And like, be a dad, give that money away, do that good thing for that other person, open up your heart. Love other people as though you want it to be loved, as though you want to be loved yourself first. Forgive your enemy. Turn the other cheek. Why is that all uncomfortable? It's because we don't know how it's going to turn out. And I would rather do things my way. Yes, today I still would rather do things my way. But I've also realized that my way is anemic, is weak. It gives an illusion of strength, but it is pointless, purposeless, empty, draining, dysfunctional, destructive. So this morning, if any of you are in this room and you know that you've been running away from God, you know that you don't have a relationship with God, I want to lead you into a prayer that would say, God, I want to come back and I want you in my life. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. So if I can get everyone to just close your eyes, let this be a private moment. If you can repeat after me, dear Jesus, I know that I failed. I know I've fallen short. I know I don't have it within myself to find salvation. So I invite you into my life. Be my Lord, be my Savior, be my friend, be my lover. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lift, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.